And good morning. Uh, we are going to be ending our series in the book of James today, and, uh, and I have actually been sad about the speed of which we've moved through this book, because there is so much in here uh, that I have not gotten to cover, um, but fortunately, um, I will be your pastor for a while, and so maybe we'll visit James again in the future. For others of you, you're going, that, no, James has been uncomfortable for me, Kevin, and uh, if we can spend some time talking about puppies and uh, unicorns, that would be better uh, than what James has been impressing upon me. But we're going to look at the end of James, and, and, and so I'm going to read it for us, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. So James chapter 5, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 through the end. Um, I'm going to read a couple verses, and then that'll jump us off. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7, says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives um, the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may uh, not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Be an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you inspired the writing of Scripture so that we would know how to live um, these days in light of your coming. And so, Lord, I pray that as we close uh, this, this book of James, when we finish this part of our series, um, that we would be instructed well in how to live our lives in light of eternity that we would live our lives um, on the edge of eternity intentionally how you would want us to live. And Lord, I, I pray that you would guide our hearts, guide our minds so that we could be the people you, we need to be so that we can do the things on this earth you're calling us to do. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, several years ago, I was watching a, a documentary on uh, Netflix and it was, a, it was called Free Solo where you had a young man who was climbing um, a, a rock cliff called um, El Capitan. El Capitan is located in Yosemite National Park. Um, it's a granite monolith, like a single um, structure about 3,000 feet high. And it's known for its jagged and sharp edges. And it's very difficult to climb. And, and so this one individual decided that he wanted to climb it, um, what's called free solo, meaning no ropes. That he's going to scale this cliff 3,000 feet without ropes on his 
own. And I looked at this documentary, and, I, and it's one of those moments where you're just like, I'm going to watch and see how this plays out. And ask myself the question, what are the qualities that it takes to endure this type of climb, uh, besides insanity. Like, I, there's probably some other pieces there that an individual needs. And, and as I thought about, about climbing, I was like, I, I, that, this picture of you are living on the edge. I mean, th- there is a moment with one slip of the hand, one misplaced foot, you could descend to your demise. That would be rough. You are on your own. You are literally living on the edge. So, so what qualities are needed within this individual? And as I think about that, there's, there's a, a patient endurance that's needed for an individual that's going to choose to continue to scale. Because if you watch rock climbers, um, it's not like parkour. Parkour is like you're running and just jumping over things and grabbing stuff, and the goal is to go as quick as you can, but, but you don't do that when you're scaling that cliff. It's not how fast you can go. It's, it's a very methodical, intentional grasp all the way to the goal because you are living on the edge. And then I read this week about... Um, Another group of people that were scaling a different mountain, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, two men, the first two men that, that summited Mount Everest. One of the most death-defying summits uh, that, that our world sees, and people go all the time to this place, and people lose their life in this process. And in 1953, these two men scaled together. And what you may not know about the story of these two men is they weren't, they weren't going solo, to this death-defying journey. What they were doing is they were grabbing a partner. And so there's a bunch of men all together at the, uh, that were getting together training for this summit. And what you may not know is that Tenzing Norgay had gone the highest anyone had ever gone a year previously with a, with a, uh, a Swiss, a person from Switzerland. And so um, Sir Edmund Hillary knew that he needed the right partner if he was going to achieve success on this treacherous journey. If he was going to live on the edge, he was going to grab someone alongside of him. And why do I start there? It's for this simple reason. When we're looking at this last chapter of James, James is calling us to live on the edge of faith, to live on the edge of eternity. In fact, we're going to look and see that that James is going to tell us that we are in the last days. We are on the edge at the end. And there's things that we need individually. There's perseverance and endurance. There's, There's a patient endurance that we need individually. But there's also something else we need. We need one another. We need people alongside of us that are going to help us to endure this journey together. So the question James is going to answer at the end of this this chapter is this. How do we live in light of the edge of eternity? There's things we need individually and there's things that we need together if we're going to live the Christian life all the way well to the end. And so to get us there, I'm going to give us three movements Um, this morning. The first is this, to realize that the end is near. Secondly, to have a a patience. And what we mean by that is just a faithful endurance. And thirdly, that we would be people of prayer, that we would have a faith-filled expectation. So no, first of all, the end is near, that we need a a patience, a faith-filled endurance. And thirdly, prayer, a faith-filled expectation. Here's the way James says it in verse, uh, verses seven and verses eight. There's a, there's a phrase in there that shows that the end is near. In verse seven, it says it this way, therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That, that phrase, coming of the Lord, is the Greek word parousia. 
It means the end, the end of things. He says, the coming of the Lord, parousia. And also, again, you see it in verse 8. Um, you too be patient. Strengthen your hands, for the coming of the Lord is near. And you see that, that word used in both of those verses as there's a, there's a coming, there's an arrival of of the Lord that's there. That word arrival, that word parousia is chosen intentionally by the New Testament authors. It was describing uh, the coming of a king, of a foreign dignitary. That's how that word was used in ancient times, in ancient Greek. The word parousia basically means presence. But it was particularly applied to the coming of a king. And so when a king would come to a certain region, um, all the people would get ready for the king's arrival. And so they would, they would fill in the potholes in the roads. They would, sometimes they would even erect new buildings or they would prepare great feasts because the, the, the king was coming and so they wanted to be ready. And so when the New Testament writers were talking about the return of Jesus Christ, they said there, it is the parousia, it is his arrival, his coming back to earth. And so some of you are going, wait, 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 wait Kevin. Jesus died and was raised. What is this about him returning? Well, Christians throughout all of history have believed this, that that the resurrection wasn't the end of the story. There is going to be a great return of the king. There's going to be a moment when Jesus comes back into history. Let me run through some verses that show it. Jesus himself saying it. Matthew 24, 3 says this. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us when these things will happen. And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And then Jesus goes on in verse 27 and says, of, chapter, of uh, Matthew and says this. For just as lightning comes in the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man. It will be, it will be like lightning flashing. He gives another illustration. He describes um, in the life of Noah, he says, for in the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. They were giving in marriage, they were, they were living their life, and they didn't understand that a flood was coming until suddenly it came. And that's how the coming of the Son of Man will be. So what Jesus is saying is, look, I will return, and it will be a surprise. So you may have charts about what you know. You know exactly when Jesus is going to arrive. You've got a chart. You've got a plan. You've got your books on prophecy. And and here's what Jesus says. It's actually going to be a surprise. No one knows. Your charts are great. They won't nail down the date. So please don't. Okay, you can talk about it later on. We don't know the date, but we do know that he's coming back. First Thessalonians 3 says it this way. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is going to return. There is going to be a great return of the king. And and he wants us to live with that expectation. He wants to live in today with expectation that he is going to return. And the best illustration for this is is this. It's Christmas. When you are young and you know that Santa Claus is coming in a few days, how do you live your life? If you're six, how do you live those days? You're like, well, Santa might be here. We'll see what happens. Like, no, what do you do as a child? You are counting down the days. There's rings you tear off. They're saying, mama, I told Santa this. Did you get that letter to him? Like, you, you know that Santa is coming. You know the gifts are rising, arriving. So you, you orient your life completely differently. You are ready for, his, for Santa's coming. And so you change everything about you. The same is true um, it, when you're in school and you have finals. When you know the final is coming, how do you orient your life? 
I mean, you may have been procrastinating the entire year. Like there's eight books to read. I haven't read any of them. You've been procrastinating for a while. But when you know the final exam is there, how do you orient your life? Someone goes, okay, can we go hang out? You're like, no, final's coming. I'm gonna die, I'm gonna fail, I've gotta do this. And you focus, there's intensity, there's drive, there's, there's an intensity there. And what James is saying is this, if you know Jesus is coming and you know the end is near, that reorients everything about your life. And as Christians, as Christians, we believe that the end is coming and Jesus is asking us to orient our lives towards him to know that the end is near. And so you, some of us push back, they're like, okay, Kevin, they believe that like 2,000 years ago, right? What, when was this written, like 50 AD? Like, like this, it's been a minute since his return. So when is he coming back? And it seems like a waste of time to live that way because we don't know when he's coming back. Well, let me just push back against that for a moment to say, look, the early church did a ton and they expected Jesus to return in their day. They did a ton. They moved the, this mission, this small gospel to the ends of their known world, changing lives for eternity. It moved quickly. It moved all the way to us here. They did a lot in a short amount of time. Why? Because they believed with confidence that they knew their Savior was going to return. The question is, do you? Do you live in expectation? that Jesus is gonna return, that the king is gonna come, and that's the perspective your Bible gives. Live in expectation. And he, he gives some ideas with this. The first thing in verses seven through 12, he says this. I want, if you know that Christ is coming, I want you to live with patience. And there's a particular definition that the Bible gives for patience. The patience that the Bible talks about is not like waiting at the DMV. If you're needing to get her driver's license or something at the DMV, what does patience look like at the DMV? They give you a number, you sit, and you have no idea when this will end. And what do you do? You just, you just endure. You know, you're just like, I guess I just got to wait here. And you do nothing as you simply wait or you mess around on your phone. But that's not what the scripture talks about when it talks about patience. Not just waiting passively. When the Bible talks about patience, he says, I want you to have a faith-filled endurance, a faithful endurance. I want you to get active in the things that I'm concerned about. I want you to be energized to do the right things with your life. So patience doesn't mean that you are passive and inactive. Patience, according to scripture, is actually a faith-filled endurance. It's people that are energized to do something. It's people that have the energy that God is real, he is coming back, and he is gonna want to see me faithful in the moments that I have. Here's how he says it in verses seven through eight. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? What you'll see in these next verses, he gives four illustrations. He gives illustrations of a farmer, of a judge, of the prophets and of Job. And he says, if you want a picture of patience, of, of a faith-filled endurance, here's what it looks like. Look at these examples. And the first one he gives is that of a farmer. And he says, look at the farmer. It waits for the early rains or the latter rains. Um, the rains uh, that a farmer would, would wait for um, 
occur at two different moments. One is in um, October or November, or the late ones were in March and April. And here's what he's saying. He says, the farmer labors, but the farmer labors knowing that he can't control everything. So a farmer works. So you think about the life of a farmer. Maybe you have grown up as a farmer. You've had farmers in your background. I didn't, but, but here's what I know about farmers. They till the soil. They plant seed. They fertilize the soil. They are constantly watering. They are constantly working. And they know that some of this growth is out of their control. But they're not waiting passively. Farmers don't sit back and just wait till the rain comes and then start working. There's all of this work in the process and they know that there's something that they can't control. The weather patterns, they can't control, but they are doing what they can with what they have. They are engaged in the work. And that's what it means to be a faithful farmer. He says, look at the farmer. The farmer isn't waiting passively. He's engaged in the work. And then he says the second picture, look at the judge. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. All throughout your Bible, it describes Jesus when he returns as one who will judge. He will look at our lives and evaluate them. Revelation 22, 12 says it this way, behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. There is all throughout the scripture describing rewards for faithfulness. And oftentimes in your Bible, it's described as crowns. There's a crown of faith. There's a crown of perseverance. There's all these crowns that are described in scripture. And Jesus is described as the judge. He says, the judge is coming at the door. It's like he's right there. He's going to bring his rewards. So be faith-filled. And then he says, look at the prophets. And here's what's fascinating about the prophets. If you've ever spent much time in your Bible, you'll, you'll see that your, your Bible is, is in large part the Old Testament. The majority of the writings of your scripture are contained in the Old Testament. Many of them are prophets, men that spoke from God to us, and they recorded their writings. And in your New Testament, every now and then, it references back to those prophets. How did they view what they were doing? How did they view in, 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 the, in the BC era what they were doing, what they were writing? 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, gives a great insight into what they were thinking. It says this, concerning this salvation, that salvation that Jesus was coming, that he was gonna bring salvation to us, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things that have been announced through, um, through those who have preached to you the good news from the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. You know what the perspective of the early prophets was, according to Peter? He says they knew that they, would, they weren't going to see the arrival of Jesus, the first coming. But they saw their purpose, their their. their time in revelation history, of salvation history, to serve a coming generation. They knew they had to be faithful to write down the words of scripture, hoping that Jesus was coming, trying to figure out what he would look like, but they were faith-filled in their place, and they didn't know exactly when he was come, but they knew they were serving a future generation. The same is true for you today. 
If you know Jesus Christ, you are supposed to be faith-filled, serving a future generation. That means we're working hard. We know that he will judge us and that our place in salvation history is like the prophets of old. We are faith-filled for a future generation, serving the next generation. So what does that look like? What does faithfulness look like? Well, Hebrews 11 gives the hall of faith. And let, if you haven't spent time reading in Hebrews, the hall of faith, what, what faith-filled prophets look like, Here's a snapshot, Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Oh yeah, that's, that's what I wanna do, right? Faith-filled endurance, what does that look like? I wanna conquer kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. Okay, okay, Kevin, that would be amazing. I mean, that's the edge of eternity that I want, right? Stop the mouths of lions, faith-filled endurance, seeing stuff happening. They quench the power of fire. That would be great. They escaped the edge of the sword. That would be amazing. They were made strong in weakness. They became mighty in war. They put armies to flight. Like, yes, as you read those, you're like, absolutely. What does my faith-filled life look like? It means I'm setting armies to flight. I'm shutting the mouths of lions, fire. No, no, daddy. You're like all this stuff, this faith-filled endurance. And then he goes on to say this. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, rocks, not other kinds, stoned. (laughs) They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves and the earth, All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You know what faith-filled endurance looks like? What faithful, patient endurance looks like? It means you know you are serving a future generation and you may not receive the benefits in your day. It means you are serving a future generation and you may never see the blessing in your day. Some of us will, maybe, And some of us won't. But God doesn't evaluate your success by seeing the miraculous. You know how God evaluates your success of faith-filled endurance? He sees the endurance in you. See, that's what God values. God values faithfulness. He's in charge of fruitfulness. Can there be miraculous things that happen? Absolutely. Does God guarantee it? Absolutely not. And God doesn't evaluate your effectiveness in life on whether or not you see the miraculous. He values your effectiveness in life of whether or not you've been enduring to the end. He says, look at the prophets, now look at Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, um, Job is a downer, okay? The book is rough. At the very beginning of the book of Job, Job loses everything. He loses his wealth, he loses his family, he loses his health, he's got boils all over his body. It is a rough go for Job. And it says in verse 21, chapter one, verse 22, through all of this, Job did not sin or blame God. And that's how Job started. And then he goes on after he gets these, these boils and then his wife comes alongside and you're like, oh, his wife, maybe she's gonna be an encouragement. She says, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity 
Curse God and die. Okay, let me just say, ladies, if you want to encourage your husband, those are not encouraging words. But you can see the emotion, right? You can see the emotion. You, you've been faithful, Job. You, you've been charging hard for God. You've been living for God. And, and life is not going well. In fact, you're experiencing the exact opposite of all of the grand promises that we hope to receive. You're receiving the opposite. Curse God and die. And, and Job responds to her. He doesn't respond well all through the book of Job, but he responds you speak, of, you, speak one of the fool, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so Job, at the start of his life, he was enduring faithfully. But he came to the end of his life, and there was a moment when he says, you know what, I just want my day in court with God. And I want to lay my case before God. God, I've been faithful God, I've lived a good life. God, I've been a good person. I've done the right things. Why has all of this happened to me? And he, and he complains against God. And let me just tell you this. If, if that's you, if your life has turned upside down, and you're like, I, I thought I've been faithful, I thought I've been doing the right things, and I, I'm not getting the right results. Hey, Job's been there. The prophets have been there. Christians of faithful of old have all been there. And he says, I want my day in court with God. And God says, okay, Job, sit down. And now you answer some of my questions. Where were you when I created everything? Where were you when I set this whole thing into motion? And God's point is this. If you weren't there when I started it, please don't question how I run it. But he wasn't afraid for Job to question. He wasn't afraid for Job to push. He wasn't afraid for Job to say, I don't understand why you're doing this, God. And God says, yeah, let's, let's come on, let's come on. But when Job starts attacking God's integrity, that's when God comes in. At the tail end of Job's life, it's very interesting. In chapter 19, he says this, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will take his stand on earth. He says, I believe that God's a redeemer. He's gonna save and I trust in him. And all throughout Job's life, it wasn't that things didn't go well. Things went really poorly in his life. And it wasn't that he didn't question God. He did, and God can take it. And he says, but still, I believe that God, my Redeemer, will live. And at the end of the book of Job, God restores all the fortunes that he had lost. Here's what faith, here's what patience, faith-filled endurance looks like. It doesn't mean that things always go well in your life. It doesn't mean that God always spends everything this side of heaven to look good, but it does mean that God wants you to come in relationship with him, to listen, to hear you out. And what we see from Job is that although he struggled through his life, faith never left his life. He believed in God even if he didn't understand why God was running this way. So what does it look like to have a faith-filled endurance? It means this, that, that we, we work hard. We know that God will reward. We know that life may get messy in the middle, but faithfulness, faithfulness to God is what's most important. And so individually, what are, what are the, the rock climbing skills you need as an individual Christian? It means this, that I need the ability 
to have a perspective that Jesus is coming. Life won't be easy, but I can have faith in him and I will be patient for my coming. But the beautiful part is James doesn't stop there. He says, there's things you need individually, but there's another part that we need corporately. And he makes this transition at the end to prayer. And the the whole last part of, of the book is about prayer. And he asks these questions of us. He says, where are you looking when you're struggling? So as we struggle through life, as we need to endure, we need endurance, where do we look? And he points two places to look. He says, I want you to look up. I want you to look to God. And I want you to look out. I want you to look to help them. He says, the first place I want you to look is to God. He says this in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him praise. The first thing he says is this. I want the first time when you're struggling, when you're hurting, when there's issues in your life, whatever's happening, the first place I want you to look is I want you to look up. I want you to look towards God. And if whatever the situation, are you suffering or are you cheerful? I don't care. You look to God. Martin Luther says this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Christianity is, is, is rooted in prayer. We pray to God. We lift our, our burdens to God. George Mueller looked after the Bristol orphans. And, and what's amazing about George Mueller's life, I encourage you to go read his biography, the faithfulness of this man and the answer to prayers were incredible. There's oftentimes he wouldn't have um, enough money to buy milk for the day. And he would pray and God would provide over and over and over again. And one time George was asked um, how he could remain so calm in the middle of a hectic day with so many uncertainties at the orphanage. And he answered something like this. I rolled 60 cares upon the Lord this morning. So how do we endure? We look toward God and we lift our concerns to him. And he listens to us in prayer. Billy Graham famous evangelist says this the christian life is not a constant high i have my moments of deep discouragement i have to go to god in prayer with tears in my eyes and say oh god forgive me or help me what do we do when we bring the struggles of life it means that we come to the fear of the lord because he cares enough and he's powerful enough to help He cares enough about our needs and he's powerful enough to help. The first place we go is we look towards God and we lift him up to him. And then the second place we go is we come to us. We come to the church. And the rest of this section all talks about how the community helps one another endure the trials of life. How do we live on the edge? We do what Sir Edmund um, Hillary did. You need a buddy. Frodo had Sam. Rocky had Apollo. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. (laughs) Batman had Morgan Freeman. And you need a buddy. You need people alongside you to help you endure. The first place he says is, I want you to lean toward the church. He says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil, and the prayer of faith can save the one who is sick. He says, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to come to the church. 
We have elders here at Bayou City Fellowship. That is our structure of government over our church. We are three campuses in three locations, and we have elders that oversee our church. And just a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a mom and her daughter. She was going into surgery, and so she asked that the elders would pray over her. She came, and we went and prayed over her um, and for the healing of her daughter. We do this as a church. We believe that God heals. He moves through the power of people. And so one place you can go is to the elders of this church. We will gladly gladly, willingly, um, joyfully pray over you and pray over whatever need that you have. That's what we do at this church and we will labor alongside you in prayer in life. But he doesn't say just come to the leaders of the church. He gives a second place, place. He says, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He says, I want you to just pray for one another. I want you to come in in community groups. I want you to come in on Sunday morning. I want you to come up after service and receive prayer. Come, pray for one another, lay hands on one another, encourage one another. I want you to be a prayer-filled people. I want you to be a community that leans in together. And he gives an illustration. He gives an example of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just a dude. He was just a dude. He was a man with a nature just like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and it didn't rain for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the heaven gained rain and it bore forth its fruit. He says, look, prayer is powerful and it's not because of the person. It's because of prayer to the one who has power, that is what's effective. He says he prayed to God. It wasn't that Elijah could stop the rain. He knew that God could stop the rain, and that's what God was calling him to do. So he asked God to do what only God could do. So we pray for one another. We lift one another up, and it's effective when we come to one another, we confess our sins, and we encourage one another through prayer. He says, I want you to look after one another. Verse 19 through 20 says this. My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings him back, back a sinner from wandering, will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. How do we live well to the end? We pray to God and we look after one another. In Genesis um, chapter four, you have two brothers that were fighting. One was jealous of the other. And so Cain murdered his brother Abel. And there God comes to Cain and says, hey, where's your brother? And he asks this question, am I my brother's keeper? Meaning, am I responsible for him? Like, am I supposed to keep track of him? And what's the answer? Yes, you are. You are responsible for the lives of others. True maturity, true maturity is not free solo individual effort. It's a willingness to reach out to the people beside you. You know what, what brings honor to every parent that has multiple children? Not when kids go solo, but when their kids look after one another. Um, years ago when my kids were learning how to swim in the pool, uh, Juliet, my youngest, um, was, was not a great swimmer yet when she was younger. And, and we were, I was kind of looking off to the side and they were in this little hot tub area and she went under and was, was gone and then suddenly they're like, oh my gosh. And her little sister grabbed her by the hand and pulled her up and saved her life. And all of them were like, oh, did you see that, daddy? Juliet almost died. And I'm like, I just got father of the year uh, by ignoring my children at the pool. 
And then for the rest of the week, they talked about how, how this sister saved that sister. Over and over again. Hey, do you remember how I saved you? Yeah, I'm, that was awesome. <laughs> like you were a goner. You were, you were out. Who knew? But I saved you. That made me so excited as a parent that my kids would look after one another and when one, one of them is hurting, they would reach out and grab them. You know what brings me so much frustration as a parent? And this is my world right now, um, just a little insight into my world, is when they fight and they bicker and they're angry at one another and they don't lift one another up, they, they push one another aside. And when, when they fight and they don't enjoy and help one another, that pains me as a daddy. You know what brings God joy? When his kids reach out and lift one another up. You know what brings God heartache? When we look at one another and we start tearing one another down. And James is saying, the people of God that live full out to the end, that live in light of eternity, they don't go solo. They look for people to lift up. So what does it look like to have a faith-filled endurance, to be people of faith to the end? It means that we, we know that the end is coming. We know it. It's happening. And those who are captured by that moment will make the biggest impact in history. It means that we're patient. We have a faith-filled endurance in the present. That means we work hard and we let God do what only he can do. And that means we have a faith-filled expectation. We look to God with our needs and we look out for one another. That's how we live on the edge of eternity. So I don't know where God is speaking to you this morning. For some of you, you've never actually considered the fact that this world is going to end, that your days are numbered and short. So for some of you, it's just a, a simple reality check. This is going to end. My days are not as long as I hope. I had, need to live with an expectation of Jesus' return. For others of you, it's, it's a patient, faith-filled endurance that you need endurance in your present to continue on with that job or in that marriage or in that struggle, that you need a faith-filled endurance to continue on. For others of you, it's that you need us. There are struggles in your life that you were never meant to carry alone. That's why you're here. And so our prayer team is gonna be coming up right now. We have, a, we have amazing prayer warriors and amazing prayer ministry and they're gonna come up and they wanna pray alongside you. So is anyone among you sick? Come on up, let's pray for you. Is anyone among you suffering? Come on, come on up. We wanna pray alongside you. And if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the goal is not just endurance apart from the empowering work of Jesus Christ. We are all sinners separate from God. But Jesus came and died in our place for our sins, forgiving us of all of our sins, inviting us into a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. He will forgive you and empower you to live the life. If you have not come to faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, now's the time. Come with our prayer team. We want to pray alongside you that you might know your maker, that you might know Jesus Christ that will change everything about you. I don't know your response, but I encourage you to come pray with us.
spend some time with the Lord and meet with us. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you, you do not leave us and you do not forsake us. And although there are challenges that we face in life, there are struggles that we endure in life, our struggles are not the end of the story. You promise a glorious return, a parousia, a arrival, where you are returning to earth and you're going to restore everything that was broken. We thank you for that. But Lord, in the meantime, we need perseverance, that faith-filled endurance. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people that faithfully endure the present. And Lord, I know there's many people right now struggling There are health concerns. There are concerns with family. There are concerns over friends. There are all sorts of concerns and burdens that we're carrying. And for some of us, we think we have to carry those alone. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you gave us the body of Christ, the community of believers, to carry those alongside of us. So I pray that we would reach out to the community you provided. Lord, there may be some here that have never put their faith in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins, and they're just trying to be a good person, live a good life, white-knuckle their way through. Lord, I pray that they would stop. Jesus, you are the king. You are the one who's coming. You are the one that we need. I pray that that person would just reach out to you in simple faith, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying for every one of my sins draw me close to you. Lord, I lift up each person to you. Help us to take our next step in faithfulness to you. 